Hello and welcome to another edition of Critical Q&A, the show where I answer your questions based on what you've sent to me by email at askchrisshelton at gmail.com. If you want me to answer your questions, email them to me and I will get them into my queue and get to them as quickly as I can, which sometimes might take a little while and sometimes might be right away. Um, but, you know, just kind of depends on which what's coming in, what I've got on hand, and what I know. <laughs> All right, so... I wanted to uh, give a couple little announcements here. One, if you guys have not checked out the podcast I put up yesterday, it is with Dr. Jeff Wassell, and it is about Scientology and Clearwater and the recent Tampa Bay Times story by Tracy McManus. Absolutely amazing journalism that she pulled off there. Months and months of research to find out what Scientology was doing in Clearwater, scooping up a bunch of retail properties in downtown and basically trying to ruin Clearwater. So we talk about that in some detail and go into some conjecture about where some of that money might be uh, coming from, going to, etc., what can be done about it. So check that podcast out. Also on Halloween, I dumped 14 videos onto my channel. I had done a long series of interviews over a two-week period of time with uh, John DeLynn from Mormon Stories, absolutely wonderful man, uh, running a wonderful channel on Mormon activism, and a former Mormon activism, I should say. And um, and he and I got in down and dirty on uh, L. Ron Hubbard, Scientology, etc. I think I've mentioned this before. Well, now I've got it all mirrored on my channel as well, so all of you guys can see it. And I put it together in two playlists that are on the homepage of my channel. So if you're looking for, you know, all these videos, I didn't want to I, I did not have, I, I unclicked the notification on those because I didn't want all of my subscribers to be hit, getting hit with 14 notifications. So I just sent out, I think, a couple of um, community notices on it. So I hope you guys saw that. And I hope you will check it out because, um, you know, out of, out of all the videos I've put together over all these years, there's not been a place where I have sat down and told the whole shooting match from beginning to end. The opportunity presented itself, and I thought, yes, let's do this. And uh, and it was a lot of work to do it. It's a lot of work to watch it, because <laughs> it's about 16 hours of video. But if you ever wondered about my whole story or about the whole history of Scientology from Hubbard through, through his life, the beginnings of Dianetics, beginnings of Scientology, rise of Miscavige, all the way to modern Scientology, it's all there. And there's, of course, you know, 10,000 details we didn't get into, but the whole, the broad strokes, the big picture, it's all there. So I hope you guys will check those videos out. And finally, I want to say that um, I have, I really, really want to throw out uh, massive, massive uh, kudos to all of my Patreon supporters recently. I've had some new people sign up as a result of seeing me on some of these other channels. I really appreciate your support. Very, very generous of all of you, and I would encourage anybody watching my channel, if you're enjoying it, getting entertained by it, learning from it, uh, being informed, then consider, you know, throwing some love my way because it is what allows me to keep doing all of this. And uh, and anybody who thinks that as we go over actually in, the, in one of the videos when I was talking to John... Um, you know, nobody gets rich being an activist, so, um, you know, so it's, it's always helpful to, uh, to get, some, get some love from you guys. All right, so that all being said, let's get on with your questions. Tyler Simmons, I have noticed that most of the religious people I've met are fairly tolerant, but I don't judge a belief or ideology by the people who practice it. If someone says they are tolerant yet believe in eternal torment and hellfire or eternal destruction, 
that person is not tolerant despite their friendly demeanor. If a person believes in hell, they are automatically intolerant and support torturing people who don't agree with their agenda, even though they themselves would never torture someone else. Also, there is this idea of thought crimes. When I was a Christian, I felt this intense pressure to obsessively police my thoughts for sin. It was miserable because I felt no matter how hard I tried to meet those standards, I could never reach them. This caused me so much anxiety because I felt I was always doing it wrong. It was through all this I concluded that to believe in hell makes a person intolerant. Am I justified in thinking that because I've experienced this exact thing? Hey Tyler, thanks for the question. You know, it would be really easy for me to just say, yes, absolutely, you're, you're dead on, they're all just a bunch of intolerant bastards and, and whatever, but I'm not going to say that at all because I don't, I don't think that's true and I don't think your logic on this is, is, is reasonable or, or, uh, or makes a lot of uh, a rational uh, conclusion based on the data at hand. Let me explain why. Um, from, what, from my own experience, and you yourself have experienced people who um, are Christians who have a tolerant attitude towards beliefs or ideas that are in contradiction to theirs. And it is okay to judge people by their actions because at the end of the day, that's all you really can judge them by anyway. You, you, no one, none of us are, are, are peering into each other's heads and seeing what's actually there. We can make suppositions about it. We can make educated guesses about it. We can ask people, what are you thinking? And maybe they'll tell you the truth. <laughs> and maybe they won't. But actions speak louder than words. Actions also speak louder than beliefs. So I want to put a plug in there that if somebody's acting tolerant and, and saying tolerant like words and, and is willing to live a life of acceptance and mutual cooperation and benefit, between people of differing religious or political beliefs, that's a plus. It's not a minus, okay? That is a pro. That's not a con. It's a benefit, not... Um, it's a feature, not a bug, okay? So uh, that's kind of what we want because you can't... Because you mentioned thought policing. And this is this kind of can go over into thought policing from the other angle or from the other side. And I don't think you want that, and I, I'm sure I don't. Um, because thought policing is rough. I believe me, I understand exactly how that feels. I lived under that myself, under Scientology, constantly policing our beliefs. And Hubbard actually talked in a few places about what an excellent and amazing control mechanism that is and how organized religion now and in the past has used that to um, keep people in line. Um, and that's actually where can this kind of goes. It's a matter of keeping people in line. You say that it's, um, or you're thinking that this is a, a, a sort of mode of intolerance. Um, I, and I don't really, I, I, I can see how you could see it that way, okay? I'm not trying to say that, you know, that you're out to lunch or coming from Mars. But let's look at it this way. We all, in a society, have crime and then we have punishment. If you commit the crime, there's a very good chance you're going to be punished for it. And we all agree that that is how things should be. That's a, in fact, that for, all, for most everybody, except criminals, is a fairly logical sequence of events. You do a bad thing, there's going to be punishment for it. 
We are, I mean, I guess you could say we're intolerant of criminals, but really, that's not, that's not really what the basis of a good prison or reform or rehabilitation system is really all about. Unfortunately, in the United States, and I can go on about this for a really long time, and I'm going to not do that right now, um, our criminal justice system is not about reform or rehabilitation. It is, it is a slave-making system, and it's used that way. And the private prison system is, is nothing but disgusting levels of, of profit on top of that. Um, so I've got, all, you know, I've got all kinds of problems with that. But if you look at a European model or other models around the world, you see that prisons don't have to be that. Prisons can be reforming or rehabilitative places to go. And a person can get actual, the actual help they need to stop being a criminal. And at the end of the day, that's pretty much what we should want from a justice system. So, okay, so I make that point. Now getting back to the crime and punishment thing, um, I don't look at that as a matter of tolerance, right? It's a more a matter, and I don't think most Christians do either. I think they look at it more as, look, if you sin against the rules or, or guidelines or whatever, the test, you know, commandments of God, there are going to be consequences to that. I, as a, you know, let's say I'm a Christian, I, I, as a Christian, am not going to carry out those consequences on you. God will, you know, after you're dead. Um, and that's a shame. That's a bummer. I really, you know, I'm kind of bummed about that. You don't believe in him or you're going to, you're going to eat shellfish or you're going to do this or that or whatever it is, whatever sin it is you're going to commit. Um, you know, that's a, that's just an unfortunate circumstance of, uh, or consequence of what you're doing. That's not an intolerant attitude. Do you see what I mean? You know, it's just more a matter of, well, you're, you know, this is the situation and this is the consequence of that situation. They can still like you as a person. They can still get along with you. They can still be tolerant of the fact that you have opposing or, or contradictory or different beliefs than they do. They can still, you know, participate in sports with you. They can still work with you. They can still go to school with you. They can, you know, there's, there's all kinds. Of, they can go sailing with you and, and not... That doesn't have to be a big thing between you if that person's not, not making it a big thing. You don't have to make it a big thing. And so there you go. You just have different ideas about what happens when you die. Well, neither one of you are going to know which one of you is right until you die. So making a big thing out of it in the here and now, in our life now, is kind of silly, isn't it? You know, I mean, I, I kind of think it is. And I don't, you know, as the, as you go, now admittedly, as you go down the spectrum of extremism uh, toward deeper and deeper fundamental belief systems, uh, more literal belief systems, more, more controlling belief systems, then that tolerance starts waning and you get an intolerance for sure, okay? So, uh, so I have to talk about this, I guess, on a spectrum um, because, you know, maybe sometimes I think most of the time, it's not true that you're dealing with intolerant people, but at the, at the fringes and the ends, you're going to have intolerance, of course, um, because that's kind of what it means to be on the ends is that, you know, it's my way or the highway. And that goes both ways. You know, it always does. Always does. So anyway, um, that's some thoughts on that. I don't know. Maybe you want to think about it. Maybe you want to ask me more about it. But um, those are some of my initial thoughts on that, and I hope that... I hope that helps. Nick, when you left the Sea Org, how did you feel about not having to wear a uniform? About having to decide for yourself what you wanted to wear? About clothing in general? Thanks, Nick. 
I was ecstatic when I left the Sea Org about not having to wear a uniform anymore. And let me tell you a little bit about why. In the Sea Org, you are assigned a uniform, and you guys have seen them. You've seen the the more modern ones have the vests, and they look like these sort of gaudy, you know, business outfits, uh, sort of. Um, when I was in the Sea Org, I was mostly wearing what's called a Class A uniform, which was the, the naval-looking jacket with the little chain. You guys have probably seen me in, on video uh, in that very first video I ever did for Karen Delacarrier's channel back in 2014. Um, you saw me in uniform, and that was the uniform I wore through pretty much almost my entire Sea Org career. Um, so it was a you know, naval uh, dress coat and, and naval uh, blue uh, slacks and a white long sleeve shirt, um, two pockets and epaulets, and uh, and that was and and dress shoes, you know, and black socks, and that was what I wore for 17 years mostly. I had a, I there was a period of time when I was doing the uh, Twin Cities uh, mission that I had a, a, a Brooks Brothers outfit, and that was kind of nice, but it was still a uniform, um, and I had to wear a tie every day, all day, right? There's no taking your tie off when you're in uniform. So pretty much every single day, except for those three years I was on the RPF, I was in a tie and this and this outfit. When I was on the RPF, it was a t-shirt, uh, a gray t-shirt and black jeans and uh, work boots and, uh, and, and regular or thick boot socks. And that was my uniform for that time. Um, and of course, being in uniform means you are uniform. You look like everybody else, you know. You don't get to stand out at all. You don't get to particularly be noticeable. And uh, and I, you know, that that wasn't particularly a huge thing for me, but it was just something I, I you know, you kind of, it's part of the, the whole thought reform aspect of things, right? When everybody is dressed the same, everybody kind of has the same basic haircut and that kind of thing, then everybody's same look, same mind, right? Same thinking. So it's all about establishing that. And there's nothing particularly nefarious about it, or it doesn't have to be. But anyway, um, once I got out <laughs> and I didn't have to do that anymore, I was ecstatic. One, because I really don't like ties. Uh, or at least I didn't like wearing the same tie and the same collared shirt, you know, over and over again. And in fact, that reminds me that um, the biggest problem with it wasn't the uniform. It was the fact that I had to wear the same clothes a lot. And I don't mean the same kind of clothes. I mean the same clothes. I had two shirts. I had one pair of pants. Uh, there was a brief period, I think, where I had two pairs yeah, there was a period of time where I had two pairs of pants, and there and you could sometimes build up three shirts. I don't think I ever got beyond having to having four of the same white shirts. I don't think I ever got past four. Um, and of course, you're wearing shoes until they wear out, and you got to go buy your own shoes for the most part, or you'd buy them. You'd um, sometimes get them through the uniform exchange. So the clothes we wore got pretty ratty after a while, right? And kind of, and it, and it was rough. It sucked uh, to be wearing out your clothes, you know, because you just didn't have any choice because when we needed more new uniform parts, we had to put in a purchase order for them. And, if, and that was, believe me, that purchase order was at the bottom of the stack every week. So eventually it might possibly be gotten to, gotten to and you might get a new shirt or something. But most of the time those things were getting cut and we weren't making enough to buy our own uniform parts. So you just kind of had to suffer along. 
So once I got away from that, it was T-Shirt Central, and I just started on that right away. I was more than happy to be in completely casual, informal clothes, and as you've seen on my channel here, very rarely do I make an effort to dress up or even wear a collared shirt. Uh, sometimes in some of my more serious videos or where I'm thinking I might need to be taken a little bit more seriously, I'll, I'll dress up a bit. And I've got, you know, perfectly nice clothes to do that with. I just hardly ever wear them because I really enjoy t-shirts and jeans and, and just very casual clothes. I'm all about comfort these days. And believe me, after, you know, 17 years in the Sea Org and eight years on staff of almost daily wearing very uncomfortable clothes, um, you know, I'm, I'm more than happy to, about this. So I think I've rattled on about it not enough, but that's kind of, um, that's kind of where I come from on all that. Matt Kasky, in your last Q&A show, you said never ends slash non-scientologists aren't officially labeled SPs, suppressive persons. Yet I would think people like Lawrence Wright, Steve Hassan, Paulette Cooper, maybe even the angry gay Pope would be on some kind of list of people that active Scientologists should not talk to. Is there a word slash label that Scientology uses for people saying things that might cause members to rethink the tech besides calling them wogs? Okay, thanks for the question, Matt. I hope I got that last name right. Um, so, yes, there is. Okay, there's a couple things. Uh, one, they do just call them SPs. What I was trying to make the differentiation of is that they are not a officially labeled suppressive persons with an issue. Um, and I mentioned um, that there's an official issue, there's an approval line, it's, it's like a very formal process. They don't even do that anymore for, for critics and stuff, right? They just sort of do this rumor line. And I guess if you were looking for a, another word for it besides SPs, I mean, that's what Scientologists call them. I mean, every, every single Scientologist would say Lawrence Wright, Leah Remini, Stephen Hassan, definitely Angry Gay Pope. I mean, we, you know, all of us, we're all SPs. Um, but they also would call them um, degraded beings, DBs. They would also call them uh, rogues. And that would mostly be a security thing. Uh, security has, the security uh, on the Sea Org bases literally have binders with photos of all the enemies of the church who have, you know, publicly come out, who might come around and do protests and stuff like that. That's why they're always snapping pictures when they're out, you know, getting pictures of protesters. And when people come around the churches, they're always so desperate to get them on film or get pictures. This is why they want to get them in that rogues gallery so that they can send that information around the world to all the different, you know, Sea Org bases and put them in the rogues gallery. So that might be another term for what you're thinking about there. And, um, and so I don't, you know, so I don't want to, um, you know, give you this idea that Scientologists don't think of, you know, church critics as something other than SPs. They do. I was just making the point that the church doesn't officially declare non-Scientologists as SPs. Uh, and that's, that's really the simplicity of that point. Andrea Adele. Hi, Chris. I was watching a video collaboration you recently did, and you were explaining the story about what happened to Xenu after he had been captured. My question is, why didn't the good guys who captured him release or try and save all us poor souls stuck on a prison planet? I mean, that's just rude. Was that ever explained? I'm so curious. 
I love your channel and recently became a Patreon. Andrea, that is a great question. I actually, um, from my recall of the OT3 materials, I don't, I think I actually had the same question. When you, when you get, sent this question to me, I was like, oh yeah, the same thought, right? I think I had this exact same thought back when I first read the materials. And uh, this was one of the things that really bugged me. Because I was like, wait a second, if, if these guys, you know, if these... Okay, Hubbard called them loyal officers. He said back in this administrative bureaucracy that was the uh, Markab Confederation or the Galactic Confederation that Xenu was ruling over, he said that um, there were that, that the, the the peacekeeping forces. I mean, there was military and there was there was armies and stuff, but the but the main peacekeeping guys were called loyal officers. And I guess this is kind of I always got the idea that it was sort of in alignment with or sort of in the same vein as um, like Jedi Knights or something or Knights of the of the olden days, you know, these these sort of like independent, not totally independent, they obviously were allegiant to the ruler, um, but they would kind of go out and do their thing and they were loyal officers. So Hubbard said that when Xenu went nuts and did his whole genocide, um, that some of these loyal officers got away, that Xenu was actually taking them out because he knew they would try to stop him. And some of them survived and got away, and then they came back around after he had executed the genocide, and they captured him. And um, I think this was supposed to be within a couple years of the whole thing happening. And then they locked him up in this fortress. And all Hubbard says is it's a fortress in a mountain with an eternal battery, so he's stuck there forever. Okay, so he ain't never getting out. Um, you know, why they didn't then go to Tegiak, Earth at the time, right? It's called Tegiak, and help all these poor souls, literally, you know, who were stuck here, trapped here, um, because the idea was that we were all trapped here um, under these ribbons of energy and, and force fields and electronics and stuff was used to do this. Why not come flip the switches and disable all this and change it all? Well, because, obviously, if they did that, that would undo the entire narrative in OT3 and Body Thetans. You know, the OT3 narrative and the, and the Body Thetans and the need to audit them uh, would be gone. There, there wouldn't, that problem wouldn't exist anymore. So, Hubbard, I don't know that Hubbard, uh, not, certainly nothing I've ever read or looked at, and I've tried to go through all the OT materials uh, that are online or that I've been able to get my hands on. Um, in all of those materials, I've never seen any explanation for why that didn't happen. And I, like I said, I had the same question too. So, Lynn. Hi, Chris. Love your show. Have you watched The Kaminsky Method, specifically Season 2, Episode 8, A Thetan Arrives? I thought it was hilarious and was wondering what your thoughts were. Hey, Lynn, I did not see it, but I read about it on Tony Ortega's blog, and I heard all about it when my mom called me, because she watches that show. And she just thought it was the funniest thing ever. I saw the entire script, uh, you know, the transcription of what was said in the show on Tony's blog, and it was very, very accurate. I mean, whoever wrote that definitely did their research. And I was impressed by that, because that was not just a, a toss-off one-liner sort of punchline, that was actually engaging with what Scientologists really believe and really do, and using the right terminology, basically, in the right way. And um, the, the um, 
what is it, Haley uh, Osmond, the guy who played the Scientologist, apparently did this, you know, this, this amazing job, um, you know, saying all the words and looking like a Scientologist and all that, because they talked about disconnection and they talked about, you know, uh, Thetans and they, they threw a lot of terminology around. It was, um, it was cool and I was glad to see that they were doing it right. And that's really pretty much my, my main comment on it. So, um, so I, that's what I've got to say. <laughs> James McElroy. Hi Chris, I've been watching your videos for the past several weeks now and have really been enjoying your content. That being said, a few weeks ago I found a Scientology program on TV called Origins of Thought, or something like that, and was curious to see if I would be able to recognize any of the terms slash lingo I had learned from your videos. It was an episode about how there isn't really destruction, and how everything is in an endless cycle of creation. About 10 minutes in, I had to stop watching because I felt like I was about to lose my mind. I was wondering if this experience is common among outsiders when exposed to this type of programming. Hey James, thanks for the question. And um, I know what you're talking about. I have not seen that episode, but it comes from a book called Fundamentals of Thought, which Hubbard wrote in 1957. And what he's talking about there, I'll just let you guys in on what this is all about, and then I'll tell you uh, my, my thoughts on your question here. What this is all about is the cycle of action. Hubbard talks about a cycle of action, and any action that occurs in the real physical universe goes through this cycle of start, change, stop, or create, survive, destroy. That's the cycle of life, is create, survive, destroy. However, destroy, Hubbard says, is an illusion because things are not really destroyed in the physical universe. So there is a creation, which is an apparent creation, because you're not really creating physical matter, energy, space, and time. You're just restructuring it or re-putting it together. And then it survives, which of course is apparent survival. So it's create and then create, 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 if I remember in this right, is sort of a keep creating it, keep it going, keep thinking that the thing is there and it will be there. And then there is create, counter-create, which is the destruction part, when you start counter-creating the thing that you're creating. In other words, you, um, if you were to um, have a, I don't know, a, a cardboard box and you created it, you know, you, you made it and it's there, let's say, let's say a wood box, you put a, put a wood box together and then you, um, and that's creating it and then, and then it's there and it's create, 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 you're keeping it there, you're polishing it, you're maintaining it, you're taking care of it, um, you know, you repair it if something goes wrong and then there is eventually create, counter create, where you either take a sledgehammer and counter create the shit out of that thing, or some explosives, or you throw it away, or whatever you do. You're counter creating it. You're you're de you're deconstructing it some in some fashion or another. That's the that's you know one at least that's one way of looking at this cycle of action or cycle of of life. And this is what they were trying to explain, I guess, in this TV show, this uh, Origins of Thought. And I can tell you that everything I just said is uh, explained very, very much, it is a very confusing manner by Hubbard in Fundamentals of Thought, so I'm sure it was just as confusing in the TV show. Took, this is a particularly arcane piece of Scientology lore. 
the create, 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 counter create thing. Scientologists don't generally, when they first read about it, they go, oh, that's interesting, and they get their head around it, and then they go, but they don't talk that way generally. They don't really think about things that way. That says a bit, that one is a bit down in the, down in the, the, the sticks a bit, you know, as far as Scientology tech or Scientology methodology goes. A lot more of Scientology is, is a lot simpler to explain. Um, there are a few parts of Scientology. This is one of them. The other one is the axioms the, and uh, some other stuff that's just really just like mind-numbingly crazy to try to figure out. And of course, after a while, after you come out and you look at it again, you realize that Hubbard didn't really know what he was talking about either. <laughs> you know, he was just he was just picking, choosing, cherry picking stuff and throwing it together and throwing it on the wall and see what sticks. You know, and that was a lot of what the 1950s was all about uh, was throwing stuff on the wall and seeing what stuck. So this is part of that, and that's why it's uh, it very mind-numbingly silly and, and hard to get your wits around. So I definitely, definitely feel for you. <laughs> uh, okay, so yeah. Okay, and that is our show for this week. Thank you very much for coming around and watching. I hope you got something out of those answers uh, and me rambling on here at a mad rate. It, like I mentioned before, if you're finding um, you know joy and happiness and satisfaction in my channel, consider supporting it. Also, uh, I have merch for sale. Uh, you can look at the link below at the Critical Merchandise. And um, I even have another channel that I want to tell you guys about. Uh, which is the Critical Clips channel. I do not promote this enough, so I want to remind you guys that every day, Monday through Friday, there is a little clip that I've taken from some past episode, and I'm kind of going through them all chronologically, so I'm still back in 2015 and pulling out little tidbits that I or other people have um, said on this channel here, either from my podcast or my videos, and um, and they're like five, six you know, minutes at the most, usually sort of short clip videos. So if you want to subscribe to the Critical Clips channel, that link is also below. All right, guys, I will see you next week. Bye-bye.